0: sit down and buckle up It's time for the Pirate Monk podcast
1: Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk podcast. Hey, uh, I'm Nate Larkin here with your friend and mine Aaron Porter and another guy in the room. Chris Hinman is here. how you doing know. Chris? I'm yeah. doing great, guys. Glad to be with you. Uh-huh. Well, uh huh. Well, we are recording this uh, sometime. Oh, it's a yeah. It's a mid July, 2022. I don't know when you're hearing it, uh, Aaron. What's been happening in your life?
0: Yeah, we just we just came off a Fourth of July weekend, which uh-huh. was which was maybe the most Nashville weekend I've ever had since moving here, even okay. since visiting. Our friend Trey Shaver, who mm-hmm. helps out so much at the uh, annual retreat, uh, took me to see Chagall Guevara at the Ryman Auditorium, which was Steve Taylor's band. Original band, well, not, right? Yeah. Not as original when he decided to kind of step away from CCM and do a rock okay. and roll band in the early 90s. Yeah. Okay. And it it totally kind of crashed and burned because of record label stuff and was very mm-hmm. disappointing. Mm-hmm. So they got together 30 years later, made an album and played one concert. That's their tour. Their, their concert tour t-shirt at <laughs> Ryman Auditorium. <laughs> so I had never been to the Ryman. I'd certainly never seen Chagall Guevara live. And that was amazing. The next night there was a party with the band in Jack White's little club the blue wow. club, the blue room. So we did that. And people like Russ Taff and Ashley Cleveland and mm-hmm. the guy from newsboys, the singer was the drummer for it. And they just, they just <sighs> jammed. And Sweet. then on 4th of July, my son and I went across the river from the fireworks show where the orchestra was playing and, and watched the fireworks. And that was his first big firework show, which now he's going to be disappointed because they hadn't done the show in like three years since before COVID and it was insane. Wow. So it was the most Nashville three days ever. And it was fun. Wow. But wow. I did hear a story that living out in the sticks where the Larkins have relocated to can also provide some interesting firework entertainment on the 4th of July. Is that? Oh, a fact? absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I think there was as much explosive material in Mount Pleasant as there was in Nashville. Wow. But it wasn't just all under professional supervision on a barge safely in the river. It was distributed throughout the entire town. (laughs) Uh, And and there are no legal restrictions against, uh, first of all, the sale of fireworks within the city limits. So, I mean, they were doing land office business or, uh, uh, you know, shooting them off and and apparently there is a lot of competition <laughs> neighborhood to neighborhood street to street
0: oh, really so it's like it's like yeah. decorating for christmas where people are like it, oh we're going unbelie- to show you everybody's out in the front yard and on the sidewalks
1: and uh i was unprepared i was and my, poor daisy our dog was certainly unprepared she was absolutely terror stricken but uh yeah as soon as the sun went it was Baghdad here in <laughs> here in Mount Pleasant. And it went, you know, a good fireworks show, you know, lasts what, 20 minutes? Yeah. This one lasted until midnight. Wow. Wow. Unrelenting. So wow. our neighbors, we have a neighbor who owned a fireworks store and brought all the unsold inventory, I swear. <laughs> uh, and uh oh. So it was a riot. Uh, So I am going now. I know that I've got to designate part of my budget next year for uh, fireworks because you know I was a non-participant and I'm going to have to step it up next year.
0: So I'm Mm kind of thinking next year we might have to make our way down to Mount Pleasant and uh, (laughs) have a little barbecue. When you when you woke up
2: in the morning, Nate, was there this haze in the air, like it was just like a fog rolling oh, in? Oh,
1: oh, well, yeah. I'm, I mean, by about by about nine o'clock, ten o'clock, you couldn't see. it. There was so much smoke in the street, you know. Yeah. You, it, uh, unbelievable, yeah. And I, the haze had pretty much dissipated by the morning, but there oh. is this the, the the litter, the residue of yeah. exploded fireworks all over town. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That's, that was weird going through uh, the navigation took us straight back through the city which didn't mm-hmm. seem like the most direct path but it was so creepy right after I mean it was like you're going through Beirut or something yeah yeah because huh? you can't see the city but you know you're in the city it was it was creepy felt like a zombie movie it was it was pretty awesome. That fireworks was in the
2: USA. Fireworks in the USA.
0: Yes, <laughs> indeed. All right, we need to get to an interview with a special guy that Chris brought in, mm-hmm. uh, and so I think we need to get to that. So, listeners, hang uh, on.
1: Yeah, and listeners, you can expect fireworks of a different kind mm. when we return <laughs> on the Pirate Month podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. What a special episode this is. Joining us today is none other than uh, the legendary Eli Machen. Uh Eli, thank you so much for joining You're us. You're welcome. Welcome. Uh, you've been in this field for a long time. You're one of the old timers. Uh, my first question to you is, how have you seen uh, the understanding from the therapeutic uh, point of view, uh, the understanding of sex addiction evolved over the time you've been uh, evolved over the time you've been involved.
3: Oh, uh, I started over thirty five years ago in this, and uh, our understanding of sexual addiction has come light years. I mean, mm-hmm. it was like prehistoric back in the and and where we've come today, and uh, sexual addiction recovery and the work working with spouses and couples. It's like uh it's a new era i mean we've gone through a real
0: renaissance i'm i'm actually amazed you don't you you look young but the fact that you you were involved with prehistoric sex addiction like sex with dinosaurs (laughs) that's insane they they had problems too you know i'm old as dirt (laughs) (laughs) so so get i need to hear more of your background i if you don't mind so I mean, for the listener's sake, not mine. But okay. what what is your story? And because Nate's very excited.
3: Well, um, I, I you know I, I got out of graduate school, started counseling in Florida um, in ninety in eighty four, and I, I kept seeing problems with guys doing things that I'm thinking you shouldn't be doing that. You need to stop. Just stop doing it. You know, and mm-hmm. and c- couples coming in would complain about. And obviously that I learned a number of years later was sexual addiction, but I had no idea what it was. Didn't know how to treat it. I couldn't find anything written on it uh, until somewhere around 89. Uh, one of my friends in, in drug and alcohol said, you know, there's a conference in South Florida uh, and there's this guy named Patrick, something of the Barnes, Carn, somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, sexual addiction. And at the time I had uh, been doing inpatient work also and had, um, an inpatient program there in Clearwater, Florida. So bottom line, I said, I'm in, I I need to know what to do. So I, we went, uh, Patrick Carnes blew my mind. I was, like, I need to do a GM recall. Mm -hmm. I had tons of clients that were struggling with, uh, compulsive sexual behaviors, sexual addiction, however you want to label it. And I didn't know what to do with it until now. And so, I went through training with Patrick, and uh, eventually, over a number of years, uh, Patrick left Golden Valley. It went bankrupt. I talked to Mark, Mark Laser, Dr. Mark Laser, mm-hmm. and he and work for me, and we had the first inpatient Christian program for sexual addiction in the country. Mm-hmm. Wow. <clears throat> and,
0: and how, how did the church, how did the church feel about that? I mean, at that time?
3: Well, they're glad we were doing this. You know, there's people that need that. I'm just glad we don't have any in our church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, And I will have to say this One of the most conservative dioceses in the country Is St. Petersburg Diocese And mm-hmm. they eventually agreed to have Mark come speak to all the priests uh-huh. and, and they did And so that was a huge difference That's the first diocese in the country that opened up to this Wow, and This wow. was back in 1993 mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so the insurance companies gave up Uh, They they quit paying. The psych hospitals went bankrupt and closed the doors. Mm -hmm. And so Mark and I took the show on the road. And so all the way through to 2000, uh, we were traveling, (laughs) the and Pony show uh, doing Mm -hmm. dances for men. And eventually in 95, we started, I started a program working with spouses uh, in 95. In 95,
1: you were working with spouses in 95.
3: Mm -hmm. Wow. We yeah. started getting ladies called and said, okay, we got our husbands coming back and they're talking weird, they're acting weird, they're doing something different. What about us? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do for us? And of course, um, we started in 95 and, and bottom line, that's it, it kind of grew from there until we took it to Nashville in uh, 2000. Uh, Mark mm. Lager and I, neither one are administrative, we're administratively handicapped. <laughs> so, <laughs> ADD. we... Uh, so traveling around the country, putting these things on seventeen times a year was a little hard for us. So we did that for a while. Then, uh, then it, it stayed there in Nashville, Bethesda, and Mark then went eventually to back to Minnesota and did his faithful and true there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I have not been in it as deep. Like, I moved into more of the trauma side mm-hmm. because we know that trauma is a huge piece. Uh, yeah. Family. When?
1: What, what? When did that? dawn on you. Did you always see the trauma piece? I remember, I've been shocked the first time, you know, a sponsor of mine told me that everybody uh, suffering from what I was suffering from, uh, had a trauma story.
3: Um, well, yeah. I mean, some of the early statistics that Pat Carnes did in the studies were mentioning the mm-hmm. high percentages of, of, uh, uh, those who are sexually abused, emotionally abused, or physically abused, uh, and that were struggling with sexual addiction and, there's a correlating numbers with the spouses of sex addicts too. So, um, you know, so the trauma was a huge piece. Uh, I tried bringing that in. It just, it didn't fit in the, in the treatment modality of working with, with sex addicts and spouses in the initial setup of, okay, how do you get somebody initially into treatment and recovery? Mm-hmm. Um, it just it it was, was just too much. It's too it heavy.
0: It was too heavy. Was it also because when you start bringing trauma in, especially for those, say a spouse dealing with someone in sex addiction, that that starts to feel like you're making excuses for the behavior. Was that part of the older modality? That's just work it out, man.
3: It can. And it's like, you know, for spouses, it's like, it's, it's hard to understand. Okay. Where does trauma come into this thing? So, It takes a level of, and this is something Chris had a conversation a while back, a level of sobriety. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean just physical sobriety of acting out or or fighting among yourselves in a coupleship, but to uh, a mental sobriety where you've achieved enough, shall we say, serenity of peace Mm
2: -hmm.
3: that you can begin to connect empathetically with the other. And that's, that's what I think sobriety, in my terminology... Of not just sexual sobriety, but sobriety in uh, mm-hmm. your recovery program, your work, your healing, your trauma work is around the ability to connect with other with empathy, and that's challenging wow. to do when you're when you when the brain is totally anxious, panicked, uh, and we're working with the lower part of our brain. That part of the brain does not have the capacity for empathy at all. Mm. As a matter of fact, it doesn't mm. care about your other organs in your body, the hippocampus will shut down every other organ in the body so it can survive longer. It's totally mm-hmm. incapable of empathy.
2: Yeah. So, Eli, I want to go back. You know, we had this conversation last summer, um, and you gave me an answer to the question. Um, you know, I was trying to fight the difference and understand the difference between sobriety and recovery because every group that I've gone to, with exception, with the exception of the Samson Society, when you walk in, you've got to set a sobriety date you got to say, I've been sober X many days. And when most guys come into the process and when I came in the process, my goal was to stop the behavior. And yet we talk about this word of recovery. And I asked you and you gave me a great answer. And I'd love for you to just kind of talk about this. What is the difference? And you kind of alluded to it between sobriety and recovery. And what's the true goal of this whole process?
3: Uh, I don't remember what we said a year ago, Chris. I, was, well, that's okay. I probably believe <laughs> <right> something <somewhere>. <laughs> then. Who knows? Uh, I, think, I think that first of all, the, there's nothing wrong, and I think it's very helpful to have, you know, how many days you're sober or that thing. It gives you uh, basic goals to achieve and to get to, and and those are not easy. And I, I'm not minimizing that goal to achieve. And you get a year to of sobriety in your belt. There, that says something that's that's pretty powerful um i think though that a lot of guys just say well i'm not doing that anymore and they stop their work mm-hmm. they stop what they're doing and they don't continue what i would call uh, the healing process their recovery whatever work they need to do to delve into now the trauma what was behind all this behavior yeah now that we've stopped it and it's no longer okay it's all about trauma and i didn't i wasn't a bad person but and no nobody's a bad person but I guess what I'm trying to say is that how, um, get far enough down the road with your behaviors to where you're at least bringing into the relationship and those around you a level of trust, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at least at some point. Then the second of all is to start delving into the trauma. What was the engine that drove the shame that drove your addiction? And I think trauma always comes with the potential. doesn't have to always comes with the potential of shame. Somehow or another, it's my fault that happened. Now, mm. that's usually when children are not, at the, to borrow Brene Brown's terminology, you know, there's no shame resilience built into the family system. Mm. So Children well, don't have a way to deal with it. How do I process the trauma? And so it must be me. It must be my fault. So then that's the seed that begins to build shame, which I believe is a main driver of, of addiction. Mm-hmm. Mm. So getting past that and into the, the trauma work allows a person to continue the healing process to stop their brain from panicking when anxiety gets too high. Hmm. Because once our brain panics, and, and, and like with some of my videos, I, you know, net you were talking about, you saw some of them. I got some of them where I talk about how when the brain hits 10 on the record scale, I mean, <laughs> it automatically shuts off. The lower part of the brain takes over and it's going to do whatever it takes survive. It's mm-hmm. not really caring about anybody or anything. It's just going to say, you got to stay alive and I got to do what I got to do to do that. And I know how to keep you alive. You mm-hmm. go back and do this behavior here. Mm-hmm. So Maintaining that level of serenity and peace is key in recovery. Mm-hmm. And the trauma has got to be dealt with and, and faced. I think yeah. realizing that if I can deal with that trauma, I can get it behind me or get, get some healing in it then I can live life with more serenity, peace, and obviously, ultimately, total sobriety.
2: So the word that that helped me so much was integration, and I think you framed it up in in what you just shared there, is that I'm trying to bring all these pieces of shame, of family dynamics, of my own split behaviors into the same place. And, uh, you know, one of the great things about, I think, your ministry and what you you've shared, and if you if anybody wants to find you on YouTube it's show up three sixty five, um, is that you do prioritize the show up muscle, and that's 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 one of those things that I'm having to fight every single week um, in my own recovery is showing up with my family, showing up emotionally, showing up and engaging with the um, the guys in my group. And can you talk a little more about? What, in your experience, how showing up has been so fundamental
3: to this whole process and helping guys move into their recovery? Well, ultimately, I think that's the goal of recovery to begin with. Those who are not in recovery and struggling with addictions are basically hiding. They're never coming to a short place, being authentically who God has created them to be, mm-hmm. and and say, okay, here I am, and, mm-hmm. and liken that. And so... You know, part of recovery is that healing journey and process of getting to the short place and being able to say to those around me, this is me. Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. they come with boundaries and other things at the short place. It's not a totally, it has to be safe. And that's really important. But it's like, I think that's God's design for all of us to be authentically who he's always intended us and created us Mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. And we hide when we're full of shame. Yes. And we're full of shame when we continue to act out or yes. to use or whatever we do. Sure.
0: So I, I disappeared there for a second as my internet turned off for some reason. So you might have moved on from some of what you were saying, but I wanted to try to uh, squeeze it down a little when you were talking about sobriety and recovery. Mm-hmm. You're talking about recovery as being the, the whole journey of healing and becoming who God made us to be, it seems like sobriety within that is the important tool to get me to the place where I can truly be on that path to get to that serenity, that I can't have the serenity and peace to be on the recovery journey if I'm still acting out of those impulses that are lower brain survival impulses. Was Absolutely. I understanding it right?
3: Totally. totally. I think that that physical sobriety, uh, behaviors of acting out, objectifying, whatever all of those behaviors are around your addiction is key to stop. Because it's, you're gonna keep if you keep relapsing, you're going to keep being in shame. If you're going to keep being in shame, you will continue to hide. And you're going to run around with high levels of anxiety saying that if they really knew, they would all abandon me or reject me or leave me or whatever the word would be and it's, or, the, or they would hate me. Or be angry with me. And so bottom line is, yes, obviously key is physical sobriety. That's what we were saying with Chris earlier. But,
0: but the purpose is and this is why I'm wondering how you guys feel about this. To me, that feels incredibly empowering when sobriety is a tool for a greater good and not the goal itself. I don't know why that makes it mm-hmm. it makes it a more desirable thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because it's not
2: required. It's not something that I have to have to be okay. It's a goal that I can work toward and chip away at. But I think what Eli said has been so true in my life. I mean, for me, the enemy has been shame. And that's why, you know, I'm always talking with guys about where is shame? You know, where is this? So that as I engage those shameful places, I'm not feeling the need to act out and to break my sobriety. I can stay on this path of recovery. And it really cements even deeper into what I think what Eli alluded to, and I agree with so much, the relational component. The more known I am by other guys, the more known I am in my key relationships, those things really anchor into this is life. This is what I want. All this stuff was a coping mechanism for what I really want right now.
0: Nate, does it feel empowering to you? And if so, why? Because I know you've been in enough different environments where sobriety was the goal. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about, uh, so I, you know, I, I bang this drum loudly whenever I do newcomer meetings. And one of my favorite parts of being in Samson is being able to pull guys out of the soup and into the boat and give them their first orientation. Uh,
0: Sorry, did we just Emphasize the fact You're sailing yeah. in soup now know. My brain is <laughs> like like
1: Circuiting No, but to emphasize the point This is not sin management It's not mere behavior modification If your only goal is to stop the behavior That's way too low And if you somehow succeed And nothing mm-hmm. else changes You're going to wind up being more miserable Than you are now mm. And more miserable to be around mm. So, uh, yeah Yeah So uh, yeah, this is and recovery. I think the other point to uh, emphasize is the recovery is still an ongoing journey. Uh, I mean, I'm back in therapy and I'm exploring new territory. Hmm. Uh, And I've been at this since
2: 1998
1: Hmm. and it is, it's thrilling. It's exciting. I'm on a growth path still this far down the road, but without, physical sobriety when that uh, I'm in the ditch and I'm not making any progress.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Eli, going back to your prehistoric comment before Uh how you're saying, man, yeah, stuff has changed so much just since, you know, you got into this in like 85, we're really working at it in the early nineties. What are like two or three things that we have moved way past common thinking that you're like, Oh, thank goodness. We don't think this way anymore except that people that haven't been keeping up might still think of sexual addiction and recovery in a 1992 kind of way. What are like two or three specific things you're like, this is better now?
3: I think that one would be the shame factor that Mm -hmm. uh, just by the fact that there's a number of programs like uh, Samson society and others that are saying you're not alone. Mm -hmm. And and it's more public and it's more out there and it's not secret anymore. I remember Mark's first book it has been changed since, but the original thing he wrote out was the secret sin. That was his first Mm -hmm. book. And then they changed the title. But the point being is that that's what it was and nobody wanted to admit it. Well, now it's being admitted. It's talked about people open about it on TV. And so it's like, okay, I'm not the only weirdo in the universe. I'm not the only one struggling with this. And I think that's huge where mm. there is more public awareness that this is a problem and that there's help, That's one. Mm. Exactly. Two is, I think that we are understanding of what trauma has done to the brain mm. and what, what the real struggle is between the ears is how to manage and maintain that lower level of anxiety in the brain. The neurology behind mm-hmm. sexual addiction has come light years, our understanding of what the brain does. And so understanding that, that we can rewrite the brain, we can rewrite, and it's, you know, the scripture says, be transformed and of the renewing of your mind. But back then they weren't neurologists. They had no clue what that meant. Mm-hmm. But with every 60 minutes of meditation, you double the neural connections in your brain around that object or that subject, that focus. And so suppose that you meditated on your vision, a man of sobriety, integrity, honor, vulnerability, mm. trustworthiness, whatever else you'll put there, and you meditate, you start doubling that. And so what happens is a functional way God's created our brain begins to change. And we understand this better today than ever. Mm-hmm. We just didn't know that back in the day. That's yeah, two. Yeah. But the third one be is our, our understanding of the whole work around what we do for spouses of sex addicts or partners of sex addicts. Mm-hmm. And our understanding of that has grown light years. I remember mean, the first time I stood up in the first spouses workshop, and I talked about them as co-addicts. Holy schmoly. I thought I was going to get stoned. Mm-hmm. I'd never been cussed out so much in my whole life. And I learned this: okay, I need to remember that one. Don't do that again. <laughs> is that is that <laughs> one of those
0: one of those moments where you want to go back in time and kick your own ass?
3: <laughs> yeah. I hate those. It don't quite work that way. But yes, you're right. Exactly. That was a stupid moment in my life. Now, what we understand today is that we're we're approaching this thing at a whole different level of dealing with their trauma initially, the trauma of the relationship. Then it can go on back to the trauma of the past. But to to just the, the whole work that we do around spouses, disclosure and how compassionate mm-hmm. it is. Um, is remarkable, and we used to just mm-hmm. throw them into the lion's den and hope they survive, and we don't do that anymore. Yeah. At least I tr- most of it don't. At least the, 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 our, our understanding of what needs to be done is better. I don't know how many people out there are doing it better, but.
1: You know, uh, one change that has really uh, uh, stuck out to me at least it's a change in my own perception. And I think it it was probably a change in the general understanding of what's going on with this compulsive sexual behavior. But when I first came into the the rooms of 12-step recovery, that's where I got sexually sober, um, I saw this strictly as a moral and spiritual problem. Mm. I didn't understand at all that it is also a a physiological issue, not just a spiritual and moral issue. And that's where I think all these huge advances in brain science and the willingness of Christians to engage brain science and to demystify and think more realistically about behavior, without having to uh, freight it all in moralistic terms, which which just opens the door for shame. I and love it, that this, when we talk about brain science, but well, that helps too, also to knock down the shame.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, and it's important in case listeners who haven't been listening long didn't catch you said also a physiological, a biological thing. yeah, it, it is, is it is still spiritual. It is still moral. Right. But when those are the when those are the weights that we think will move us forward because we've forgotten that weights don't help you move forward, they keep you stuck, mm-hmm. then you're not moving forward spiritually. Or morally anyways. So mm. I, I, love, I love your stories of finding freedom out of that burden that didn't help you at all. Because yeah. you grew up in the most moralistic and, quote, spiritual environment. And it didn't help you find freedom or any of the life that Eli's talking about. No recovery in that life. Mm.
2: And that's why that word integration meant so much to me. Because it did put all the pieces in the same place. I mean, I love how you're just talking about the uh, the neuro um, aspects of our recovery. You talk about meditation being so essential. Is when I'm understanding who I am, just like you mentioned, 60 minutes on your vision, uh, you know, envisioning your values and, and who you are. That's a moral identity that's who I am that's part of my spirituality we have whole curriculum in the church on who it, who are you in Christ right but when we get to take that and we say hey that's a that's a physiological thing as well i need to take the time to integrate that i need to take the time to to speak about what's going on in my heart and have discussions about feelings and emotions and things that in a lot of church settings seem nonsensical and yet we have so many disintegrated people walking around. Um, I, I, just think that word integration, it's a lot of different places. If you do, um, psychological study, I know it's there. It just was a great blessing to me to, to just hear that word and be like, aha, this is, this is what I'm going for. I've got all these different pieces and all these things I'm working with. And now I get to say it's all,
0: it all matters. Okay. With that in mind, Eli, cause I, I love how you phrased it, Chris, that you could put all of those things in the same place. Mm -hmm. I know so many people that are listening to a ton of podcasts, reading a ton of books, and so their recovery journey is full of diverse information. It's fragmented. Is there a point of diminishing return in our information age, where information is easy to come by and cheap, where you, with the work you've done, would say to a person, okay, that's all great, we need to do this, we need to focus on this. At what point should our listener go, maybe I'm thinking too much about this and I'm getting way too fragmented? I don't know if that question makes sense, but it's crystal clear in my head and I want an answer.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think that one of the things that I liked about the way Jesus taught stuff is that he was a reductionist. I mean, he said, you can do all this stuff if you want, but he says, the main two things is this. And so he would say, you know, if you want to sum up all the law and the, and the prophets, then just love God with all your heart and, and love the ones that are close to you as you're the same as you, as if they're you. Now, taking off of that reduction thinking is that a lot of times we'll get into these long prayers and we're telling God how to run the universe. I got really <laughs> mad at him because he wouldn't do anything I told him to do. So I quit praying. Heaven rejoice! <laughs> what I learned is that it's probably more important for me to sit still hmm. and listen. So a lot of times I'll get clients to say, why don't we just start with this? You spend two to five minutes in the mornings and sit down with God and say, I, I've got my, my journal here and I'll write down whatever I think impression you give me. And then I'm going to meditate on that another 15 minutes. Well, you take, I don't know how many days, but you do that over a period of time. You're building up things that you're hearing from God on a regular basis, rather than reading the Scripture, listening to preaching, listening to sermons. I'm not against that. Don't get me wrong, but it it defrags the system. Mm-hmm. If I can learn to listen to God mm-hmm. and, and and learn to hear His voice, I mean, even learn what His voice sounds like, or mm-hmm. you know, it says this might be from God. I'm not sure. Or and then after a while, it says. God just told me He liked me. I'll never forget that. It was the most profound truth I've ever heard in my life. Mm-hmm. Now I knew He loved me because God is love. But you're telling a guy that screwed up as much as I have that God even likes me. Mm-hmm. You know, wow. Now I ask Him a million times following that. Are, are you tell me again? Are you sure? Now where does faith come from? What's the scripture say? Hearing, hearing what? Word. A hearing. Uh, word, word it's about hearing, hearing by the word of God, yeah, okay. But that's not talking about the Bible,
1: mm-hmm.
3: right? It's the that, voice of God, yeah. It, it was a Bible, and it wasn't talking about sermons from the pulpit, it's talking right. about hearing from God. So, you're talking about defragging error. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, what we might need to do is just sit down. The most profound truth I'd ever heard in my life up to that point, and I was 50, 50 years old, 51, it was a sense of that. God liked me, and when I asked him a million times, he finally got it through my head, that's the truth. I can bank mm-hmm. it, I take that to the bank. I can stand at the short places, I'm a man liked by God. Now, I may not be liked by Aaron, I am by Chris. Uh, Nate's a little questionable,
0: but it
3: <laughs> doesn't change the fact that I'm not likable. I am likable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, if I begin to say, what else do you say, God? Now, what I'm saying here is this, is that as we begin to meditate on these things, then God begins, I think, to reconstruct our thought process, our belief system about who we are. And that undoes this, the shame messages that were all lies about us that are not enough. You're a bad and worthless person. No one will love you, but whatever. And so, you know, all that's negative stuff. How else are we going to get to it? I didn't even know that my liking being liked was an issue until God yes. said that one day. And I'm thinking, I, I, I I never that ever in my mind, but then it just it went straight to my heart. It says, that's a wound, dude. And I'm speaking to it. So you're asking Aaron, how do we defrag? I think asking God. And if I can tune in enough, even if it was two minutes, and my ADD brain can't stay there that long. So I mean, God was sovereign. I was ADD. I said, You got two minutes to get it to me. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would write down what I think I heard. Well, after a while, there's consistency what you're hearing, and it matches up with the scripture. It's not against scripture, but it's like, it's kind of special. It was right for me. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure, Aaron, God likes you too, but hearing it is really cool. Mm-hmm. And then finally believing it is even better. Now that combats the shame messages that we've heard from the childhood. And I believe nobody can get to it quicker or directer, any more directly. Than the Holy Spirit.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm. Wow. Well, that's a long answer, Aaron. I apologize. But no, how do we defrag?
0: Simplify. Mm.
3: Wow. That's beautiful. That is beautiful.
0: Very good. So if somebody has four books they're going through right now, maybe set set a few, at least all but one aside, and then make sure to take time to actually meditate on some of those things that they Instead of trying to get through a whole chapter every day, if you're blown away by one paragraph, it's okay to close the book and say, maybe I need to meditate on this for the next week. Mm. No yeah. more paragraphs. Well, okay say,
3: how will this impact my life mm-hmm. if I apply mm-hmm. this? Mm-hmm. And just meditate on applying that one simple truth. Mm. You're right. I mean, this is something, what does it say in Revelations? So, you know, we're constantly bringing teachers and preachers to us that tickle our ears we're shoving more knowledge into our heads and we're becoming more and more stupid.
2: Because
3: mm-hmm. there's no inner wisdom.
0: Mm-hmm. And the well,
3: wisdom comes from inside, that connection with the human spirit, the truth, the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. saying, this is truth. And how do I apply it? How's it going to change my life?
0: That is the scary trick of information, though. If mm-hmm. I listen to a podcast and somebody says, exactly what my experience is, I get excited like what I heard means something to my life, but then not- if nothing changes, if I'm educated beyond my level of experience, then all I'm getting is re-excited and m- not moving anywhere. But I feel like I'm moving somewhere, and that's so dangerous.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I-, I like that, Aaron. It- knowledge doesn't change anything.
0: Mm-hmm. But it's we have to. Application yeah, to it. we have to take an inventory. I think sometimes I have to take. Sorry, I weed on you guys. I no, have I to take. I, I have that. to take an inventory sometimes to actually stop and think: Is my experience in life and my behavior different than it was six months ago? Mm. And if the answer is not really, well, then whatever I've been thinking was so helpful to me has not helped me because nothing's changed and then to confess that to myself first and to others.
2: Yeah. And I I would say that understanding is the word that's coming to mind. You know, it talks about wisdom and understanding. Understanding is a thing that I'm really trying to grapple with. I think what Eli, you're talking about the experiences of the truth, talking about it with others, sitting with it and just letting time pass, letting the Holy Spirit speak. I mean, that's, that's kind of my next journey in life is embracing understanding because I, I, I've said this to guys this week, I've got enough information in my head to live out the rest of my life. I just don't understand it. I don't, mm. I don't sit with it. I don't embody it. I don't integrate it. And so that's where I've got to continue to do my own work too. And it's helpful sitting with you guys to be able to do that because I'm having an experience
0: of truth that now I can build my story off of. Hey, listeners, if you want to give what Eli said a try and get that integration that Chris is talking about, and you open your journal and say, okay, God, I want to hear from you, but you're afraid, hey, I don't know if this is just the stuff in my head or it's the Holy Spirit telling me what God thinks, and let me be a reductionist for this exercise. If you are not sure, the two things that matter most to me is that God already told me that there is no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ so if what I write down is condemnation about myself then that's my shame speaking that is not from God Mm -hmm. God also told me that nothing created can separate me from his love so if what I wrote down makes me feel like he does not love me can't be his voice Mm. Those, for me personally, are two keys for me to double-check, am I even on the right track? And if what I wrote down has condemnation and separates me from God's love, that's all right that I wrote it down because it shows me where my heart is and what I'm struggling, and I need to take that to God and say, God, I'm, I'm dying here. I don't believe, I don't believe that you could love a person like me, and then listen again and see what you hear. Because you might need to hear, I know that's what you you believe, son. And I love you well, right now in that.
3: And mm-hmm. add in there if you'd like, I don't believe. Help me in my unbelief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, that came straight from the disciples. So it's like, I, I really want to. I just don't.
0: Please help me with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is a worthy request. I love it. Love it, Eli. Thank you. Well,
1: Eli, uh, you talked earlier about uh, getting to the show up place. And that's uh, that's terminology. I don't know whether you invented that terminology, but uh, I think you kind of own it now. Uh, talk to us a little bit about Show Up 365 and what listeners can do to engage.
3: Well... Nick, the other thing I'm doing today is things like this. Um, I do some group intensives occasionally. I'm semi-retired, so mm-hmm. I do have the. I put all of my information up and will continue to do so uh, on the YouTube channel. Show up three six five. Oh, show up! I'm yeah, yeah. Yep. Show up three six five. And bottom line is like, if you're struggling to rebuild your coupleship, I have 26 videos in a series of helping you rebuild neurologically, emotionally, physically, spiritually, trust again. I know as a spouse myself, uh, there's times where I lost trust in God. I wasn't sure if I could trust me with God or trust what I thought I heard with God or trust what I thought I was doing spiritually with God because nothing worked. And so so I walk individuals and couples, through the whole process of rebuilding that, even spiritual trust. I didn't even teach how to listen and hear God, you know, just very simple, very basic. Um, I don't get off in any kind of weird directions. And then the last three videos in the series, there's like three or four videos per series is building trust back in a relationship. How do I know someone is safe? How do I be safe? How do I create a safe relationship? And I, th- those are vital in the follow-up, as couples find serenity and peace and, and sobriety, then how do we rebuild this? What's it look like to be safe? What's it look like to have a safe relationship? Even building a coupleship vision, I put that in there. So yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's helping couples build on out in the future. And I, I'm just leaving that is on YouTube forever. I guess I don't know how long it'll be there, but it, it mm-hmm. should exceed me. And then I've got. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, and, and by the way,
1: those are not just uh, those are well produced videos. Mm-hmm. I well scripted, well illustrated. Uh, congratulations, man! I'm really oh, stepping you. up and doing something that's, I think, world class. Mm-hmm. We'll make sure to include uh, the links to Eli's YouTube channels uh, in the show notes. Well, Eli, thank you so much for taking time and talking with us uh it's it's uh it's an honor to finally have an extended conversation with you thank you for all that you have contributed well Um, nate
3: thank you it's an honor for you to ask me i was really humbled that you and chris would ask and y'all would want me here uh i really believe in what y'all do i think y'all make it a huge impact worldwide and uh i just pray blessings on y'all's work Mm -hmm. and on y'all's lives and thank you so much for having me today
1: Thanks, Eli. Thank All right. Well, listeners, stay with us. We'll return in just a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast.
0: Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. I like Eli. He's got a, he's got a good... because <laughs> he's... He, he, I, I spent a week with him in Alaska
2: last summer great great adventure trip with about 30 guys and he's just down to earth um, living in Asheville North Carolina and I, I love that dude He's he's about as blue collar as they come.
0: Well, mm. I want to ask you guys what stuck out to you most. I know for me, I uh, just thinking about sobriety as a tool, Mm. Uh, I just I don't know why that just kind of lit my heart up Mm -hmm. like okay yeah I guess it's like if you want to diet but don't want to exercise and (laughs) you know there's various tools the goal is to whatever get in shape lose weight but the goal isn't to exercise the goal isn't Mm -hmm. to eat less and so Mm -hmm. sobriety is a tool uh I I just I need to meditate on that a little more. Oh, very Chris, true. Chris, I know you were you were thinking about a more communal aspect of what he was talking yeah. about.
2: Yeah, so that's um I resonate with what you're saying on the on the sobriety piece and the shame connection, but with what uh Eli was talking about, just about being together and uh, you know, uh, Joshua one talks about meditating, ruminating. Um, one of the things that I love about our national retreat in EVA uh, in the first weekend of November every year is that we get together and yeah, there's great speakers every year. I've loved every one of our speakers. There's great breakout groups, but there's so much time to just sit with the guys and ruminate. In fact, uh, you know, Aaron, you and I did that this past uh, year till uh, 3 a.m. It was 30 degrees when we left.
0: It was, it, was <laughs> it was was getting cold. It was getting cold. <laughs> I should have <laughs> worn pants.
2: <laughs> we got the last of the embers, but we got to just sit and take some stuff that we'd been thinking about and reading about and learning about, and just just chew on it for a while. And I felt so connected, so you know that experience of being liked and loved was there at the retreat, and just I I I left on uh, a, a relational high, not so much a a spiritual high. It was a spiritual high but it felt like coming to church in the way that I've always dreamed about. So I just Mm. want to advertise that if you hadn't signed up for the EVA retreat, please do so because that's one of the experiences that I pray you'll have.
1: Yeah. And I would say if you plan to come to the national retreat in EVA, Tennessee, the first weekend in November, uh, don't make the mistake of waiting to register. Mm. I've got to tell you uh, at this point of the year, typically, we are just breaking into double digits in uh, registered uh, attendees. You know, we're trying, well, I'll get all excited, call up Tom and say, hey, we finally got 10 guys because guys register late. All right. We've already got, as of this morning, 58 guys signed up. Oh my God. For the fall retreat. Wow. Uh, we're going to, uh, we have limited capacity. It's going to sell out. Hmm. Uh, the best beds are going to sell first. And so, you know, the longer you wait, the more likely it is that you're going to be out in one of those bunk houses. But uh, anyway, it's going to be great. It doesn't—you uh, don't have to pay the whole thing up front; just a small registration fee to save your place. But uh, if
0: and, you know, you're feeling like you want to go, and, but- and the first ten people that register within ten minutes of this <laughs> podcast will get a foot rub <laughs> from Nate on the first night of the retreat. <laughs> Get some lotion. Wow. Be Can nice. we pay a
2: uh, have the foot, Rob? Because I would pay extra foot. <laughs> <than
0: mine. laughs> I, I don't know. It was the first thing that came to mind, I, I realized that might not have been the, the best prize to offer. But <laughs> work something out. Yeah. Well, cool. I, I look forward to that every year for sure. Um, how, mm. how great. And it's I was going to say it's coming. It's already the middle of July. It's coming on. It's already
1: the middle of July. It's and happening. even before the EVA retreat first two weekends in October, there will be Samson retreats in Italy, Mm. Uh, two locations on back-to-back weekends, uh, and uh, KK Ray will be there, I'll be there, uh, and really excited to just see how that goes. First of all, we're going to be in Italy. I've never spent time in Italy before. Mm. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, I've been told by Daniel Weens, the guy who is kind of in charge of organizing things over there, who's who was behind uh, the Italian translation of Samson and the pirate monks has really helped to build the organization. He has said, "Uh, Americans need to understand the accommodations will not be as plush as you're accustomed to in the US. They'll they'll be nice, but they won't be plush. Hmm. But the food. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) More than compensates. That's what it's all about.
0: (laughs) <laughs> that, that makes sense. Well, it makes sense that the closer you get to Greece, the more Spartan the accommodations would be.
1: Yeah. Oh, nice. Oh, Very good.
0: I didn't know yeah. if that was a dad joke or a Badoom joke.
1: <laughs>
0: Anyways, yes. Yeah, so so get online. Uh, where can they find all this information about registering and things like that?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, we, there's a big meeting tonight of the Volunteer IT uh, team, I'll be talking to them. I'm not sure that even up until now, there there are uh, banners on the website that will take you to the registration points. I do know that you can get those links through the Noble briefing, the monthly newsletter of the Samson Society.
0: And that is not so, the Noble, uh, and, not the Noble um, briefing. No no, 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 but
1: no bull. bull. And past issues of the briefing are available at the bottom of the front page on the Samson Society site. So it might take a little work for you to get there, but it's well worth it. Uh, and uh, uh, do it before you forget to do it. All right. Well, I think we've about come to the uh, to the end of the time. Boy, uh, this has been a lot of fun. Chris, mm-hmm. it's really been great having you with us this week. Terrific. I'm glad to be here with you guys. Uh, like I said, I've been listening to the Pirate Mom podcast a long,
2: long time. It's almost like the audio in the back of my head. So, I'm glad. Oh dear. To be part of that. oh dear! Thanks for letting me crash the party, guys.
1: <laughs> oh, I do have to ask you what was your what was your reaction the first time you saw Aaron? I love watching people. Oh They've heard gosh. Aaron for years, and then they see him. It's oh, like dude. did it match uh, up with your expectations? Okay, it- so
2: it, this is going to be better than you think.
1: So, okay. uh, I had heard
2: Aaron, heard Aaron, Aaron, and I saw him for the first time three years ago at the Eva Retreat. He's sitting uh-huh. at a shirt table. I walk up to him. And he said. I said hi. My name is Chris Inman, and I just have to let you know that you're my favorite asshole. And he looked at uh-huh. me like, "Who are you?" <laughs> <Come> <laughs> and on, I was, I
0: had I had to look like I took that as a great compliment.
2: You you yeah, did. You sure. softened up, and we kind of you know we kind of worked <laughs> it out. But that's, that's not, I'm, I'm telling you, I have terrible pickup lines. I can just put that.
0: Up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I I can appreciate that. That's that's what you heard from this show. I'm always baffled by people that meet us and say, "Oh, I thought you were like the straight laced one, and Nate was more of the pirate." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah. How in the world did that come across?" No. So I, I appreciate your good listening.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. That, Nate's the, the nice I, one. That was a compliment. <laughs> I, I take it I'll as only that. a compliment.
1: Okay, fantastic. All right, well, brothers, that's it for this week. Uh, As always We love your letters Any feedback, any suggestions, any pushback Take a little minute Drop us a line at PirateMonkPodcast at gmail.com And don't forget to leave a review Or at least click those four or five stars uh, Wherever you get this podcast That pumps it up in the rankings uh, So it makes it more likely That somebody who really needs To hear this conversation Will find it
2: Mm.
1: Okay, well Fellas, until next week, then, this is it. I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. Who are you
0: guys? <laughs> <laughs> oh, do it again. Do it again. Chris, you can go. Okay. 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 Yeah, until next week, I'm Nate. Now I'm Chris. Now I'm Aaron.
1: And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. All right.